So welcome to Confessions of a Serial Seller. My guest today is, I've got to be honest, I don't want to embarrass the gentleman, but he's one of my heroes. I read one of his four incredible books a few years back when it first came out and it, it changed the way I think actually. He's the founder of Dent Global. He's author of four great books, 24 Assets, Key Person of Influence, Entrepreneur Revolution, and one of my best all-time books, Oversubscribed. Daniel Priestley, thank you so much for joining me today. Tony, I'm, I'm very, very happy to be on a call when it starts like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dan, for those who maybe haven't read any of your books or don't know about you, tell, tell my audience a little about your journey in sales and, and how it all began for you to where you are today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm known as uh, an entrepreneur more than a salesperson, but a huge part of my journey is sales and marketing uh, background. Um, <clears throat> when I went to university for the first time, I, I paid my way through what well, I, I dropped out, but I paid my way through the first year by doing door to door sales, knocking on people's doors and, and setting appointments. And um, I did telephone sales and um, I did cold calling and all that kind of stuff. So I was kind of thrust into that world as a late teenager. Um, and then I had this awesome opportunity. I, I dropped out of university. I wasn't happy at university. Um, and uh, a friend of a family said that they were starting a company and would I want to be employee number three? And it was pre-revenue and it was a brand new company. So I booked an appointment. I, uh, I had a half an hour meeting scheduled. I turned up at this beautiful big house. The guy was a successful entrepreneur who was starting a new company. And uh, we hit it off. We ended up talking for about two or three hours. And he basically said, look, I'm going to start you out in sales and we'll see where it ends up. So I ended up doing commission only sales uh, where I, I got um, I got 10% of everything that I sold. And on top of that, he wanted me to be almost a, an assistant. Um, and he said, I'm going to give you an entrepreneurial apprenticeship. Yeah. Um, and uh, I kind of had a business within a business. So my, my first year was just making sales. Um, my income exploded. Uh, so I went from earning $1,500 a month working all the time, doing terrible jobs, yeah. pizza hut delivery, bar stuff, you know, working in bars, cold calling on phones. And I started making about 120 grand a month worth of sales and getting 10%. So I was on wow. 12,000 a month. Wow. So <clears throat> it was an extraordinary experience because I was only 20. And um, suddenly I, I rented myself this really cool beachfront um, two bedroom apartment. Nice. I moved in with my girlfriend at the time. Um, I upgraded my car. And I was, I was just having such a great time yeah. being a commission, commission only salesperson. I could not believe how lucky I was to, uh, to have landed, you know, this, this particular job and also to have taken a big risk to be commission only and to be getting, you know, a 10% stake of every sale simply, yeah. simply because, um, he didn't want to pay a base salary. So that was yeah. kind of like my, my, my first, um, experience. And he, I told him I wanted to be an entrepreneur mm -hmm. and he said, if you really want to be an entrepreneur, uh, you'll take a commission only job at a higher commission because that's, that's entrepreneurial. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> so he sold me, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and then I went off and started, uh, uh, in the second year I became, I got into marketing. Um, when I left that company, I took two of the salespeople and we went and launched a new, um, a new company. And <clears throat> basically a huge part of what I talk about today is the importance of sales, right? Cause mm. none of the, none of my businesses would have grown unless we had a really powerful sales yeah. uh, culture in there. We, you know, we, we, we really value the sales function yeah. and we know that 
even when the marketing's just brilliant, basically good marketing might get you half the way to your targets. Yeah. And it's actually the other half comes through good sales. Yeah. Um, the, the other funny thing that happened in the early on was I had this wild sales manager who was just completely extroverted, um, this Greek uh, Melbourne guy who um, he he was he was real kind of he was like a character in a in a show. Yeah, he had this he had this like you know he he would always basically like for example no kidding <clears throat> he would get us to stand up on our desks and wear um, knight in shining armor helmets and swords it. and oh so and completely wacky yeah completely wacky and he would say things like he'd say things like you got to turn up the painometer. Right? <laughs> the pain is only a level four you need to make it a seven or an eight love it he sounds like a legend <laughs> love it he was he was a um, he was a wild uh, wild guy he goes i listened in on your last call um you know there was there was no personal accountability right so he, he kind of uh, it on. anyway so he, he he rallied out rallied the troops love and what were you selling what in that first year when you you went to make you know as you said sort of 12 grand commission what were you actually selling then it, it was uh, training programs training packages right. um so it was actually an interesting thing to start sales in completely intangible product um you know essentially we had a brochure and a course outline and all that sort of stuff mm. we had to kind of paint a picture around what the training would would be and mm. what it would benefit had to ask lots of questions about what people wanted to get out of that. Yeah. So it was kind of like, um, you know, it's kind of a very intangible. Yeah. When you sell something like a car or an iPad or a computer, you know, people kind of physically get yeah. what it is that it is. So it, yeah. you had to really, all you were armed with was, was conversations. Sure. Um, so it was a, it was quite an interesting experience. So when you then said to your boss, you want to be an entrepreneur and you said you, you set up, did you set up on your own then? Oh, look, I made a, I made a, you know, they say, choose your moment and find the right time, right place. I approached him and I said to him, look, I've been here from the very start. I've started a division of the business that's profitable. We're doing 750 grand as a business within a business, yep. making 175,000 of profit. Can I get some shares in the business? Yeah. Reasonable. And <clears throat> I didn't, I didn't choose my right timing. I didn't <laughs> pitch, I didn't pitch it well because he turned to me and he said, Dan, if you want shares in a business, it's time to go start your own. Mm, and I was like, oh, wow, I didn't see the conversation going that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I probably should have role-played that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so anyway, we, um, he, he kind of planted that seed in my head. I think he didn't think I would go off and start my own company. Yeah. Um, but basically, he planted the seed in my head and I thought, maybe I should go start my own. So yeah. I started looking into it. And the more I looked into it, the more I felt that I could. And I did. And um, it took off. So a million in the first year, 11 million or just under 11 million three years later. Wow. Through, what, yeah. what business down was that then you set up? I was doing event marketing roadshows. Um, when we exploded, I would go, basically what happened is I went to the franchise expo in Brisbane yep. and I, I met the owner of a franchise, a franchisor yep. who was trying to sell franchises at the franchise show, which yep. sounds like a smart thing to do. But I remember, right. I remember saying to him, the problem with this environment is one buyer walks in and can see 300 different yep. opportunities. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, you, you're so spoiled for choice. You're not going to choose anything. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of like if you walked into a, a room and there's 300 buffet 
choices at the dinner table. Yeah, you know, what do you choose? Like, well, what am I going to go and choose? And you, you suddenly, even if it's all Michelin-starred food, you're suddenly going to devalue it because there's so much yep. around. Yeah. So I said, and he said, well, how would you do it? You know, I, I get your point, but there's no alternative. And I said, well, my company does event marketing and road shows. What if we put on a series of events where essentially we're just presenting you and we get yep. 60, 70 people to turn up and they, they look at you and they evaluate you and there's really nothing else to choose from. They're just mm. looking at your franchise. Mm. And he said, well, I've never been able to get people to turn up. And I said, well, that's my background. I think I can do that. Mm. So we structured this deal where he was, he was on track to hit about a million worth of sales a year of franchises. Yep. And like, there was no way he was going to hit 2 million. So I structured a deal that on the first million, we got a small percentage equivalent to the costs of, of exhibiting. Yeah. And then on the second million, we got like double that because yep. you know, we're performing. And then if, if by some magical chance we could get more than 2 million of sales, then we would get um, like 70%. It was like, I think it was, I think it was 70%. It was crazy. Yeah. yeah. And he had, he had no belief whatsoever that it would be possible to make more than 2 million a year in sales. So he just basically said, fine, you know, you, yeah. can, have, you can have anything after yeah. 2 million provided yeah. the costs of, of, uh, of training these people are covered. And he also thought in his head, well, you know, I can run the business on that first 2 million anyway. So, right. so fine. So anyway, we made eleven million dollars worth of sales. Or Jesus! 10, yeah, wow. 10, 10, 10, what what franchise was it? Um, so you got to remember, this is pre-internet uh, or pre yeah what we think of the internet right now. Um, it was a franchise that was talking about uh, advising businesses on the technology that they should use, right? Um, advising them on um, their essential services, advising them on their electricity, power, and gas. Right, I uh, see mainframe computers um digit we had things like digital pens oh yeah um, for signing de contracts for remote sales forces and um crm systems that you should use so it was basically it was a franchise around being a technology advisor and at that time revolutionary right at that time it seemed like such a smart thing unfortunately it collapsed years later four or five years later um because basically most of that advice went online so yeah. most yeah essentially the marketplace did eventually uh, just go online and pick their, you know, review yeah. sites and all that sort of stuff. But um, it was a smart idea at the time and it seemed very on trend at the time. Um, but, uh, but it was um, amazing. It was, 11 million or so is that's just astro. That's exceptional. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, well, that's what they thought too. They were quite shocked. Yeah. And where did, did you, you take that then? Did that business then continue to grow your business? Uh, so I hit a point where um, there was a natural end to that. So at the end of year one, we'd made so many sales that they basically had no capacity to train any more franchisees. Yeah. And they had kind of basically they'd maxed out all their territories. Yeah. And the franchisees were starting to make noises saying, hey, if you if you do another year like this, there's going to be too many of us. Yes. Um, Couldn't support us. Yeah. So I had the choice that I should either go and find another deal like that. Yeah. Um, which was a potential or... Um, I should travel and I'd made, a, I'd made a bunch of money and I thought to myself and I was 25 and I thought to myself, if I don't travel now, yeah, I'm literally never. never travel. I'll be, you know, I'll, I'll, I've got this opportunity to go overseas. So I started to think about, okay, maybe I'd go to London like most Australians do and, yeah. um, <clears throat> and do that. <laughs> so when I was getting ready, I found this uh, guy called Roger Hamilton who was running 
uh, psychometric profiling tests um, on, about entrepreneurship. Yeah. I got really fascinated with it, and I, I dropped him at the airport one time, and he had a ride. You know, we drove. I drove him in the in my car, and we ended up having a great chat. And I said, "Look, I'm an entrepreneur. I've just gotten out of this deal, and I'm I'm looking for new things." And he says, "Well, you know, I'm 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 doing really well in Australia with this technology and this this training." And I said, "Well, my background is selling training." Yeah. Um, and he said, uh, "He said, well, I've got this non-performing licensee in the UK. Would you be interested in taking out the UK?" Wow. Uh, and I went, "Well, actually, I was planning on going to London, so why not?" Yeah. So I launched- I launched in London. We did two million pounds in the first year. Wow! I then signed a second speaker. We did a four million pounds in the year after that. So, basically, I got I was meant to take a break, and then I ended up. Um, That's the downside of an entrepreneur, right? Always going to happen. <clears throat> cannot stop myself. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. That's incredible. And is that what Dent Global became then? No, Dent Dent Global. Um, after working extensively with a lot of entrepreneurial speakers. Uh, like the dragons from Dragon's Den and um, people who built multi-billion pound businesses, um, it started to morph into a, a group of people who wanted to go to everything we were doing yep. and who were going on more of a journey. And during the global financial crisis, I really had to think about what do I want the future of the business to look like? Yep. How do I want to change? How do I want to pivot? How do I want to own my own asset and yep. build my own proprietary system? And, and, and kind of, I was putting a lot of thought into that. And essentially what I became excited by was accelerator programs in Silicon Valley. <clears throat> if you're a 22 year old who, uh, you know, can code and understands technology, there's all these accelerators designed to help you to produce a uh, technology um, that you can take to market. Mm. But the majority of entrepreneurs are not 22 year olds who can code. They're yeah. They're 41 year olds who've got 15 years experience in the industry yeah. and who, who understand the sales, the marketing, the management. Um, so what we, what I identified as a gap in the market was an accelerator for grownups an accelerator for people who mm. had, had more traditional business experience or traditional mm. technical experience. And uh, we basically took the best parts of a Silicon Valley accelerator and started packing, packaging it together as an exciting experience for someone who, you know, who's not a 22 year old who can code. Yeah. And um, it turns out there's a lot of them. Yeah. Wow. So that, that's, and that was your, when did that, when did you have that idea and then create Dent on the back of that? We launched the key person of influence program in 2010. Yeah. Uh, we morphed into Dent uh, as a more complete accelerator uh, offering in 2015, 16. Um, and we've basically opened, you know, over the last 10 years, we've opened up offices in Singapore and USA and, we, we now have three time zones. Our model is now time zone based. So we have a Toronto office, a Sydney office and a London office. And then we actually went and acquired a bunch of service companies. So we now have uh, publishing media technology as, wow. um, as, as part of the group. So today, Dent represents less than 50% of the revenue of the group. Most of our business is actually in the services businesses. That's um, incredible. But, yeah. What's the size now of the company? If you don't mind, what, what are you yeah, turning we're, over? We're about, yeah, we're about 60 people globally. Um, uh, so less than 30 of those, less than 25 of those work in Dent and, yep. the, and the rest work across the other businesses. Um, so Incredible. Yeah. Do you still work with Roger Hamilton? 
do I still talk to him? Did you still work with him? Is he still involved? No, in- no, 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 no. We, we, in the global financial crisis, he, he took on a different strategy. I took yeah. on a different strategy. Um, so it was good while it lasted, but the Amazing. GFC kind of disrupted both of our businesses and it was a natural, yeah. natural parting of the ways. Amazing. So tell for my audience who maybe haven't read oversubscribed, you know, I, the concept is so clever and I, I know some people might struggle with positioning themselves in that way. So just talk my listeners through a bit about how that came about for you and, and most importantly, how they can implement that into their sales. Yeah. So the, the, the genesis of oversubscribed actually goes back to a conversation I had with a very successful stock market trader who worked in a bank um, and worked managing a fund. And he was explaining to me that the reason stocks go up in value has nothing to do with um, CEOs and market and economy and all that sort of stuff. Mm. He said, stocks go up because there's more buyers than sellers. And actually it's quite interesting because right now we're in a series, we're in a situation where the economy is heavily affected by COVID-19 and the stock market's actually just going up because the government's creating loans in the marketplace there's yeah. more buyers than sellers and everyone's pushing the stock market up. Yeah. So basically um, he said that to me 20 years ago and he said, the, the only reason prices go up is more buyers than sellers and prices come down if there's more sellers than buyers. Now I've never taken an interest in the stock market, but I was very fascinated about how that principle applied to entrepreneurs. Yeah. And essentially um, if you, uh, 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 sorry, essentially, if you um, have a product and you make it freely available and anyone and anyone can buy, uh, you effectively devalue it. And yeah. if you make it exclusive and limit capacity and really protect the experience and make sure people have an amazing experience with it, but there's only a limited number, yeah. provided there's more people avail- who want that experience than there is available, the price goes up. Yeah. Um, you know, a Ferrari is quarter of a million pounds it's not that much different to a Toyota, a Toyota sports car sure, or, sure. Or, a, or a Ford sports car, which you might get for 60 or 70,000. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but the problem with the Ferrari is there's plenty of people lining up. So yeah. if you don't, if you don't want to pay your quarter of a million, someone else wants to pay yeah. their quarter of a million. Yeah. So I guess the concept of oversubscribed is to stop trying to sell to everyone and limit capacity to a limited number of people at a very high quality, choose people who see value over price, yep. find, find the type of person that you can add the absolute most value to, yep. um, and focusing on that type of person, limit capacity, truly look after them, and get a waiting list. Yep. <clears throat> and one of, the big, one of the big kind of insights in the book is the idea of marketing for signals, not sales. So essentially, rather than going out there and trying to get people to buy something, just purely and simply get them to signal interest. Yeah. And when you have excess signaled interest, let's say you've got the ability to look after 100 clients and you've got 400 people signaling their interest, yeah. you then talk to your clients and basically, or potential clients and say, look, there's 400 people who have signaled interest. There's only 100 spots available. Yes. Um, you know, would we be able to have a conversation as to whether we take you on as one of the, Yeah. Uh, you know, so essentially, it, you know, it's that competitive tension or that demand and supply tension that creates healthy, profitable prices and also ensures that you're only working with people that you genuinely add value to. So I think from, from something you said there, and I want to give you a good example where I saw this 
where I felt not fell into the trap because it's not a trap, right? But I became one of those guys chasing this was with a guy called Jonathan Jay that you might be familiar with. Uh, he, he ran the coaching academy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Um, and, and I remember years ago, I saw this Facebook ad and I, I was starting off in my training company. I was early days, probably turning over 200 grand a year. And, and I read this Facebook ad saying, this year I can only take on seven clients to see if that you're, you're the right fit for me, print out this document, fill it in and apply. And I did, it was like 11 of 30 at night. I've made myself a nice cup of tea, had a Kit Kat, printed out this document. And I'm working my way through it. It said, you know, do you turn over between 150 and quarter of a million? I did. And I'm filling out who's your dream customers, blah, blah, blah. And after I got to about page five, I thought, hang on a minute. I see what's going on here. I'm applying to become a client of this guy. And, and this was a 15K investment, right? Which I yep. didn't really have. And, and it, it was suddenly like a light bulb moment for me. I thought, what a genius. And I, and I met Jonathan, actually. I've got to get him on my podcast because I met him, um, in, funny enough, near Putney, where I know your base. I was about to say, you said, do you know him? Uh, his kids were going to the same play center as my kids. And I used really? to bump into him and he had read my books as well. And Great really, guy. Yeah. Great guy. Um, Very real. Like yourself, Daniel, massive entrepreneur. And he, he now talks, I mean, he's a good guy for you to definitely connect with. Well, by the way, it sounds like it's one, one, some listeners may listen to that and go, Oh, it sounds like a ploy. Yeah. But, but actually here's the thing provided it's genuine and provided uh, he is actually protecting seven spots and offering a lot yeah. of value to those seven spots. Yeah. Um, and maybe, maybe his real number's 10, but he's already got three, but yeah. Um, so perhaps like provided that's real and that's genuine and it's not a ploy. Yeah. If you were to get 30, 40, 50 people apply for those seven spots, yep. you would actually be able to select the right seven clients who will get genuine value from his offering, whatever yep. the offering is. And actually rather than just selling to anyone who's got 15 grand floating around. It's actually like, you know what, that company there, I've got experience with that type yeah. of company. I know how to, I know how to turn that up. I can make some introductions. I can, yeah. you know, share some really targeted insights. And, and that's, that actually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because yes. suddenly all seven clients are getting a great result. Yes. Um, and then they're raving about it. And then yeah. it's like, Oh yeah. You know, and then they'll go out and get more people. Totally. And the opposite the opposite can be devastating. If you take on, let's say, let's say you can genuinely look after 10 clients, you take on 15 because you're out there trying to sell, 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 yeah. and, you know, anyone, and then none of them are getting great value. And then the following year, people say, oh, I've heard about you and you don't yeah. get great, you don't get yeah. great results. Yeah. Especially the power of social media, right? You bad experience. Yeah, and people, so, and I think one big thing you've touched on, Daniel, is about niche. Know your niche, right? Know your lane. Yep. But there will be some of my listeners going, well, our product, our service helps everyone. So yep. what's your advice for that? So another word for niche is campaign. So when you think about going and uh, niching, think about campaigning. So yep. if I said, let's say someone said, Oh, I, I own, you know, my niche is people who go scuba diving. It's like, well, my campaign is going after people who go scuba diving. Mm. So the reason I talk about niching is because when you say I can help everyone and you know, there's, you know, I can, I can help anyone do anything. Yeah. It's like trying to catch mosquitoes with a chicken wire. Yeah. It's like, yeah. 
you know, there's just, it's just too broad for anyone to get, to get excited by that. Um, when you say, uh, I do, <clears throat> I do fitness training, but only for, for men who want to train for a triathlon and they're over the age of 40. Yeah. Um, now what, what the power of that is, is that you then know how to, who to go campaigning for. Yes. You can put a, you can put a powerful message into the marketplace. You can campaign after those people. You can yeah. sponsor events that are relevant to those people. You can put blogs on your social media about that people. Suddenly you start actually hitting, hitting onto the, the right sort of people mm. who see the most value in working with you. Now, mm. the reason you might have chosen that niche is because of your background, your experience running triathlons or yep. that you've helped a client do that before. Um, so maybe you, you know that that's a particular type of person that you can offer extraordinary value to. Yes, I'm um, with you. So, for example, if you're saying I can do all things to everyone, well, okay, well, why? what makes you any different to the 45-pound an hour trainer that's down the road? Sure. You know, sure. Um, but as soon as you say, well, I only work with triathletes yeah. over the age of 40, um, people who are training for their first triathlon, it's like, oh, okay, what makes you different? Well, I've actually helped people achieve yeah. this time and I've done this and I've yeah. overcome these barriers and this. It's like, okay, well, then that makes you the specialist that I want to work with. Yeah, that's very clever. But what, and what happens though? So, and, and when you say it, it makes absolute sense. But then yeah. what happens if a week later when you've chosen this campaign, you get an inquiry from a company that doesn't fit that niche or that campaign and you don't want to turn business away. Maybe you're not in a luxury position where you can afford to turn business away. How, what's your advice there? So it really comes down to, if you take on this client, can you genuinely offer superior value to the client? Yeah. Because remember, the, the game is really, the game is moving to a high value position. It's about, it's about not doing what everyone else is doing. Yep. It's about offering an extraordinary level of value, a, a kind of type of value that's very unique for the, for the client. So maybe someone comes to you and says, look, um, I'm not planning a triathlon, but I'm over 40 and I want to climb Everest. And I want some help uh, doing mm. that. And you say, well, why have you chosen me? And you say, well, actually, I've kind of chosen you because I've been reading some of your stuff and I've been yeah. looking at this and I think there's a really good fit. Um, and you say, okay, great. It's a high value project. It's a bit different to what I'm used to, but I think I can take you on and get a great result. Mm. Now, <clears throat> obviously, if you can't get a great result, you know, put your brand first and basically say, I'm, I'm not the right person for you, but I know someone who is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you genuinely can get a great result, I got no problem. Uh, I got no real problem with you taking on high value clients who you yeah. can help. Yeah. Here's the, here's the biggest issue, right? And, and most people are petrified of sales and you're, you're an exception to the rule and your clients mm. and your listeners are exceptions to the rules. Mm. The vast majority of people do what I call ABS breaking anything but sales. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. And yeah. And it's basically, <laughs> What most people do is they set themselves up in business and they say to themselves, okay, I'm a Putney-based financial planner and I can help anyone do anything in that space and please yeah. come to me when you're ready. Yeah. And it's kind of like they just sit there waiting for people to turn up. It's like the world is not going to beat yeah. a path to your door. Yeah. Pick a niche, find something high value to talk about, get out there and talk about it, campaign yeah. for it. Um, and, uh, and, and turn it into something. And it's kind of it. like my original story. You know, the world is full of 300 opportunities at the franchise yeah. show. Yeah. 
you know, yeah. and it's just too much choice. So no one chooses anything. Yeah, it's a really good point, actually. It's a, not a really good way of looking at it. You wrote a book, The, the Key Person of Influence. Tell, tell me and my listeners a bit more about that and really, in, from all your experience, what it really takes to influence others. Yeah, so the dynamic is that um, if you take 100% of an industry, there's 90% that's highly competitive yep. and they're basically punching it out with each other uh, over price and over customers and they're just absolutely fighting for the bottom and it's a race to the bottom and it's a race to be average. I can do that. I can do that too, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then right up the top, there's 10 to, you know, 10, maximum of 10%, probably less than 5%, which I would actually say that they're highly um, collaborative. So it's these top people in the industry who are always working together and supporting each other and I'll mail my database, you mail your database, I'll do this. And these are the key people of influence at the inner circle of the industry and they're movers and shakers. And this weird dynamic happens where once you're seen to be a key person of influence in your industry, people are bringing you so many opportunities that you really can't do it all. Yeah. So therefore you're an opportunity magnet, you're spoiled for choice for opportunities. So you kind of share opportunities around Yeah. and you, you get 10 things a day. So you pick the best ones and share the rest around mm. and then, suddenly it becomes this kind of vortex mm. where people approach you all the time with great opportunities and you can't do everything. And suddenly everyone wants to be around you and mm. all this sort of stuff. So if you actually look at income distribution in the UK mm. uh, from 10% down to zero, down, down to the zero percentile, it's pretty, it's actually not far off each other. So when you first get into the workforce, the lower end is like six to 12,000 pounds yeah. worth of income. The middle is about twenty-five to thirty thousand pounds worth of income, and then you get right up to the ten percent range, and it's only about fifty-five thousand worth of income. Mm. So, from basically from zero to fifty-five thousand covers ninety percent of the people in the industry. Mm. From the top ten percent, it ratchets right up very mm. rapidly: seventy-five grand, ninety-five grand, mm. one hundred and sixty thousand, three hundred thousand. Mm. Suddenly, it just goes. It goes right up to the to the top. So essentially this, if you're not a key person of influence, if you're, if you're seen to be just a normal person in the industry, you are going to duke it out with everyone else in the industry. Um, So you've got to do something to position yourself as one of the special shiny people. Once you do that, uh, the deals just start flooding in. Um, And I love that concept. Totally get it. What's your best advice for listeners of how they can make themselves position themselves as that key person of influence. So I worked with these guys for years, Roger, um, guy called John Martini, the dragons on dragons den. And I, for starters, by the way, the one thing they care about more than anything else is being seen to be the key person of influence in their industry. Yeah. They absolutely, you can make fun of anything. You can joke about anything. You can fool around with anything, you, you know, but the one thing that is sacrosanct is you must always go along with the fact that they are one of the most important people in the industry. Yeah. Um, If you were to insinuate otherwise, you're out. (laughs) You're dead. Yeah. You're dead to me. Yeah. So this is the most important thing. I heard a story about Donald Trump even before he was a president and he went on these talk shows and they said, you can make fun of his hair, his weight, his daughter, his wife, anything, but you're not allowed to insinuate he's not rich. Um, It was was written into the contract. That's hysterical. 
right? Hilarious, right? Uh, so you're not allowed to insinuate that someone's not a key person of influence. But anyway, look, I hung out with all of these ones for, for many years. And the big five things that they do really well is very, very good pitching. Yeah. When you ask them, what do you do? When you ask them to tell you about what they're up to in the world, they make it sound incredible. Yeah. Whereas, a, you know, you might talk to a digital agency that builds websites and they say, we're a digital agency, we build websites. Yeah. And the key people of influence will talk about, you know, the fact that humanity is going to be this interplanetary species yeah. and it's going to be incredible and we're going to need websites. And, you know, and so, so suddenly you get it you get drawn in big vision, right? So they have stories that are contextual stories that are way bigger than what they do. They tell great stories and they, they explain the context long before they talk about what they actually do. Mm. Um, Mm, That's interesting. One of the guys who, who was selling the franchise, when people would ask about his franchise, one of the things I loved about him is he would, answer the franchise by telling this detailed story about um, JD Rockefeller and how he built the oil industry. And he would start with this uh, story about organized distribution. And suddenly you kind of excited yeah. by this story. I and love then you'd say, okay, let me talk about what we do. Love that. Yeah. So, so powerful pitching. The other one is published content, books, mm. articles, blogs, mm. podcasts, videos, anything that people can read, watch, listen, or do. So just publishing stuff out there. The third one's obvious, but it's a big one and it's, it's really great product. So having a product, having a product ecosystem, um, you know, having ways to make money, having, you know, that you can swan around making buzz, but you need some, some product yeah. that, that's behind you. And in many cases, the key people of influence actually do have the hot product as well. Yeah. So they're very good at having the hot product, acquiring the hot product, innovating the hot product. Mm. One thing that frustrates me with a lot of entrepreneurs or business owners is that there's such technicians that they miss the forest for the trees. They don't partner mm. with anyone. They don't improve the product. Many people don't even produce a brochure for their, mm. for their service or product. Mm. They just tell people what they do. Yeah. Um, Whereas I noticed that key people of influence, they always have a beautiful brochure mm. talking about their services, their products. Like these are the types of mm. things that we do. Um, sometimes it's more online, but it's that product description. Mm. Raising profile, obvious one, having a social media presence, having a, um, a media presence, having more than two or 3,000 followers on all of the platforms, yeah. um, commenting in the media. So that's all that profile stuff, speaking on stages. Yeah. Um, and then the final one is they're really good at doing JVs and partnerships, joint yeah. ventures. Yeah. You know, they, they, they go networking for joint ventures, not for clients. They go looking for the person who's the aggregator. Yes. Um, you know, they're really good at working with the, the other movers and shakers. So yeah. those are the big five pitch, publish product profile partnership. Brilliant. Um, you do those five things well and you move out of the functional, you move into that influential space. Amazing. What's a couple of things to finish up, Daniel. It's been fascinating hearing you. What, what's some of the best advice you've ever been given along your journey from a sales perspective? Um, from a sales perspective would be number piece. Number one is, is treated as a profession. Um, so a lot of people do not do sales like it's medicine or they don't do sales like it's data science or they don't do sales like it's uh, accounting you know, it's haphazard. It's, it's fly by the seat of your pants. Yeah. And, um, you know, my mentors around sales said it's a profession. It's made sales makes the world go around. It makes businesses function. It pays payroll. 
you know, if you take the salespeople out of most companies, then the rest of the company won't get paid mm, next month. Good point. Um, so treat the damn thing like a profession yeah. and keep track of your numbers. Uh, study what worked and what didn't work. Mm. Turn up. Yeah. Turn up having done your research on the client, yeah. you know, knowing more about their situation um, than, than not. Yes. The, the next one that goes with that is role play. Like just yeah. do role play. Yeah. Role play, role play, role play. Yeah. You, you know, you, I'm, I'm watching uh, this documentary about Michael Jordan at the moment. Oh, it's the best. The last dance. I love it. What Isn't it great? Oh, phenomenal. That's but dedication, you, right? Yeah, exactly. But you look at <clears throat> these guys in a normal season, they play 82 games. And then on top of that, they practice yeah. for six, seven hours a day Incredible. on top of the games that they're playing. Incredible. And you look at anyone who does anything that's high performance, the level of practice and role play yeah. compared to being on the field, it's, it's something like 90-10. Yeah. So um, in the, le the, the higher the stakes, the more role play you do. Yeah. So like, you know, astronauts are going to train for 10 years yes. before they ever get anywhere close to a rocket yeah um you know military guys are going to do 10 years of military war games before they actually ever see any action yeah so um one thing i see with salespeople is they've got common objections that they've that they're seeing every day and they're not role-playing good answers they're not yeah they're not yeah. sitting down with each other and saying let's try so it right. let's yes. try it this way let's try it that way they're not audio recording it, listening it, listening back to their conversations, yep. transcribing their conversations. We now have apps on our phone that allow you to transcribe audio in real time for free. Yeah. Um, transcribe your damn conversations. Yeah. Have a look at what filler words are you using. Oh, yes. I keep I keep saying this word over and over and over and over. Or listening back, it's like God. I was doing way too much talking. The other person mm. wasn't really. I wasn't engaging mm. them. I was just talking at them. Mm. Um. So role play, treat it like a profession, you know, okay, you didn't go to university for six years to become a salesperson. So what? Some of the yeah. highest paid professionals are salespeople. Absolutely. Get, get in the game. If you're going to do it, be in the game and do it right. Do it properly. Amazing. Amazing advice. So uh, obviously you're author of four great books. What's your top three books that you've ever read? <laughs> okay. Well, first thing I would say, here's a cheeky one. The book that changes your life the most is not one you read, it's one you write. So whenever you feel, if, even if you feel 20% ready, yeah. get in there and write a book. Yeah. Because you, like, you've got stories, you've got case studies, you've got stuff that's rattling around in your head yeah. and it becomes very valuable when you put it into a book. So yeah. anyone listening who's a real compulsive reader, I really challenge you in, in the year ahead, what if all that time you spent reading, you actually spent writing mm, and you actually good. wrote wrote a book so i know that's not the answer to your question no no that's good good challenge if you're looking for someone to change your life if you're looking for a book to change your life there's nothing like the book that you've written because that becomes mm. the biggest lead generator it mm. becomes the biggest it, it adds so much credibility mm. um, you know it's an awesome uh it's it's just a great way of acknowledging your story and you and mm. you'll discover things you'll remember things yes that, that you you know you'll be writing and you'll go Wait a second! I worked on an award-winning project. And yeah, I just, like I forgot Which about trigger. that. Was, yeah, like 2007, we were doing that thing and we won that award, and it's like what? I've never really told that story because we yeah. just soldiered straight on. Yeah. Um. Or you'll remember a low point. You'll go, "Wow, remember that time I slipped on the ice on the way home, and it was already a low point, and, I'm, and now I'm in, 
emergency room with a broken arm and it's like that was a real low point let's launch a chapter at that point yeah right yeah. so so the book that is most transformational is one that you you write with that said um there are some great books that i've that i adore um i really geek out on a book called principles by ray dalio um okay. You know, he's a, he's a guy who built a multi-billion dollar hedge fund and then he documented in pain, painful detail um, uh, every piece of information about what he, how he made decisions and he, he distilled that into a set of principles. Love and basically, um, it's, yeah, it's one hell of a book. <laughs> I've never read that. I've got to check that out. Principles. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not an easy read, but it's, it's a worthwhile read. Yeah. Um, I love a book called Shoe Dog, which is the real behind the scenes. I loved story. it. Phil Knight, what a book. Yeah, that, that was a great book. And I love the big reveal about that book, that it was actually really damn hard and they constantly skated on thin ice. And Phenomenal. They, they got from quarter to quarter to quarter, barely with their, you know, with their knees intact. Yeah, phenomenal. Um, you know. Yeah. Um, Another great book I'm reading at the moment is called Thirst, which is about a guy, a young guy who quits as an entrepreneur in the nightclub scene, doing a lot of drugs. Mm. Um, and he That's decides cool. to go and go to Africa and build wells. And, uh, and he, That's he, cool. yeah, he, at the moment he raises about $70 million a year for putting clean water wells in all throughout wow. Africa. That sounds great. What's his name, the author? His name is Scott Harrison. He's a, he's a friend and acquaintance of mine and he's an amazing guy. Wow. Um, he created this thing called Charity Water. Wow. Um, I'll read that. I'll check that out. That's brilliant. Principles and Thirst. Thank you so much. Daniel, thank you so much for your time today. Honestly, I've absolutely, I, I, I get inspired when I read your content. And as I said, Oversubscribes, one of the best books I've ever read. Um, but just actually being able to have the opportunity to talk to you and learn from you, phenomenal. So I can't thank you enough for your, for your time. So uh, once Cheers, again, Tony. thank you for joining me and stay safe. Thank you. You too.